Hi, I'm Jen, and I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that this podcast deals with the hard stuff in life. We share stories of trauma and triumph, and the subject matter may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for content warnings and take care of yourself. If you want to further support what we're doing, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash nowwhatpod. You're listening to Now What, a podcast where we celebrate the human spirit by sharing stories of strength and resilience. For those going through hard times or looking to get inspired to change their own life, we're your hosts, Jen and Tisha. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Tisha, and today she is going to share with us her story that led to the inspiration for why we're doing this podcast. How are you feeling, Tisha? Uh, good. It's it's interesting being on, on this side and being the one who's telling the story as opposed to the one who's listening to the story today. Um, but I really do think that it's important that we each share our stories and that we put ourselves in the, the position of our guests and that we're able to be vulnerable. Um, we're making this podcast where we want people to get comfortable hearing uncomfortable things and being vulnerable and being real. So I think it's really important that we, you know, <laughs> embrace that ourselves. Absolutely. I think that's, and this podcast is our kind of like baby. It's like us. So we have to put us into it. Yeah. So prior to let's say 2018, I would have considered myself to be a resilient person. I had been through a lot. I had experienced a lot of trauma, you know, throughout my youth and I'd made it through all of that. And I would have considered myself to be resilient. And I was finally in a place that was stable. And it took me a long time to find that in my life. And then in 2018, in the summer of 2018, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And that really shook me hard. It felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. Well, it feels like it's something, knowing a little bit about your story before, like there was always like an element that you could control or get yourself out of a situation, like as you grew up. And you had done that. And this was something that was completely out of your control. Yes. And, and it was really, you know, something about having my physical health challenged as opposed to my mental health or my physical surroundings. Right. This felt certainly a little bit not within my control. I couldn't learn my way out of it, which had been a really um, big strategy that I had employed throughout my youth was like, I can learn how to do anything if I just research it or I ask the right people and if I work hard, I can improve my lot in life, so to speak. And having my physical health threatened was like, I have no control over this. There definitely was a time where I spent a lot of time researching my diagnosis and really went down like a rabbit hole. I am talking hours upon hours, like sleepless night researching almost as though somehow the internet was going to be this crystal ball and that somewhere I was going to find the answers and I was going to find what I was looking for was that, which really was that reassurance that I was going to be okay. And um, the internet isn't a crystal ball, I discovered, but only after like really like (laughs) getting to the end of it. (laughs) Yes. 
And actually it was my gynecologist who said like, she's like, it is not a crystal ball. And that really resonated with me when she said that I was like, oh, she's right. And that is what I've been doing. And that's not necessarily healthy because there can be a point at which you have too much information. Yeah. Too many options of like our outcomes. Right. And hearing all of the bad stuff. So that's part of it. Also, you know, I really being told that I had cervical cancer. Um, one thing that was really hard about that was having to tell people, having to tell my friends, having to tell my family and feeling really like I felt really responsible for other people's reactions and other people's emotions in regard to what was happening to me. And I really So I didn't tell a lot of people. I basically told the people who I felt like needed to know very close friends. Well, I remember it's funny uh, because we were at a Counting Crows concert when you told me I can't now list like I had all these other like growing up memories of Counting Crows. And now that is like (laughs) in there with them, which is so, I don't know, kind of wild, especially now Mm -hmm. that you know, you're here and healthy, but yeah. So, I mean, if you want to talk about that, I'd read, I'd been diagnosed with cancer and I hadn't had my first appointment with the oncologist. So at at that point I knew nothing. I didn't know what stage I was at. I didn't know what treatment was like. So there was just a lot of unknown and some, I had joined the cervical cancer support group and somebody said, listen, like, don't not do things while you're waiting for that appointment, because If you then, you know, have to go through chemo, you're not going to be able to do those things. So do them while you can. And so I made this decision that, yeah, I'm still going to attend this concert with my friends. And I was a wreck. I probably ruined the counting crows for all of my friends. Like, (laughs) you know, it wasn't the greatest show. Uh, Maybe not, but like separate from that, it wasn't a great show. (laughs) And that was the first time I was seeing some of my friends to tell them in person, what was going on. And I really wasn't in a good place. So yeah, I told my immediate family, I told some close friends, I told a neighbor, because I knew I would probably need to rely on her to help with the kids. What was it like telling your girls? I don't know that we ever talked about this. I didn't tell them. You just didn't tell them at all. Oh, wild, right? Even like Um, when it came that you had to like have a procedure and everything. Okay. So I don't think we've mentioned this, but at the time I, my kids were uh, three and five when I was diagnosed and there's only so much really at that stage that they can understand. So I just told them that, you know, the doctors found something growing inside mommy's belly. They don't know what a cervix is. So I just left it at that and that it, it can't be there because it will keep growing And that I had some appointments with the doctors and the doctors were going to try and decide what they needed to do. And that either mommy was going to have to have surgery or they were going to have to give mommy really strong medicine or maybe both. And it would be three months before I had the answer for what my actual treatment was going to look like, because, you know, they had to just do procedure ABCD. And they had to, you know, do these pathologies and all of this. And there's all these kind of things that they look at before they make that decision. So I knew at a minimum I was having surgery, right? I didn't know if I would need chemo and radiation to follow. 
So I just kind of left it at that. Um, I did not use the word cancer. My children's only experience with cancer was would have been like Terry Fox and learning about him at school and Terry Fox died. Yeah. And not everyone with cancer dies. So I didn't want to use, I, and part of it, I just couldn't bring myself to use that word with my kids. I couldn't Yeah. right or wrong. I don't know, but that's just how it was. So I didn't use the word cancer with them really until after I'd been told I didn't need any more treatment. Right. And, and part of that goes back to really like, I felt such a sense of ownership over other people's responses. And so, as I said, like, I didn't tell a lot of people. I told some close friends and some close family members, and I just really tried to stay positive, right? I didn't want to, I didn't want to burden people. I didn't want anybody like fussing over me. I definitely didn't post anything on social media about it. And I really just wanted to kind of keep up appearances and stay positive. I'd really never known anyone with cancer. And what I did know, or what I did hear was this kind of narrative that like, you know, she stayed positive and she never gave up. And, you know, she always had hope and she fought to the end. And I felt like I had to do that. Like I had to just stay positive. I didn't want to. So as few people who knew, even fewer people knew I was scared and nobody knew how scared I was. Like I did not communicate that with anybody, partly because I felt like I couldn't. I felt like if I let on that I'm scared, then other people are going to be scared. And I don't want that. What an impossible thing to keep inside. Right. And like even saying it now, I realized that I'm not responsible for other people's feelings. No. But because I was the one who had cancer, I felt like I was the one who was bringing this burden on other people. I think also, again, I do think it speaks to the type of person that you are, just how like caring and empathetic and all the things that I think are your superpowers, Uh like um, contribute to that. But I think also because generally people don't know how to respond to something like that. It's almost put upon you as well. Like, you know, when someone's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they seem really sad when you you share, like, again, kind of referring back to my own experience, like your news or whatever, or they see you for the first time after finding out, you know, this horrible thing that is going on or has happened to you. It's hard to not feel that responsibility. Right. Because I definitely sometimes felt like people wanted me to reassure them. They wanted me to say, I'm going to be okay. I'm good. One of the other things that happened is because I was so stressed out and I was so worried that I like literally couldn't eat. Like I just lost my appetite. So uh, during that time, I lost about 30 pounds. So people kept being like, oh my gosh, like you look great. Mm -hmm. And partly I think that made them feel better to see me looking like I was healthy. But every time someone told me I looked great, I'm like, yeah, because I can't eat because I'm sick because I'm not well. And I'm scared. And I'm scared. And I was like, I was really scared. And my mind went to like really dark places that I didn't want to share with people. And like, even now, just thinking about how like dark some of my thoughts were, I'm tearing up a bit. I definitely had thoughts like, well, if I'm going to go through chemo and I'm going to be really sick and my family has to watch that and I don't make it like, maybe it's better if I just kill myself. And like, what, 
what would my method be? And not that I was suicidal because I wasn't thinking about killing myself at that point, Mm -hmm. but I definitely was thinking if I'm terminally ill, how do I want to go? Maybe I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Maybe I don't want my kids to have that be the memory of me. And I thought about things like, well, what kind of woman would I want my husband to remarry? What's she going to be like so that I can tell him like, that is messed up. Like here I am happily married thinking about who I'd rather him marry. Right. Right. Like, and I never said any of that to him or to anybody, but these are the things that were really, or some of the things that were consuming me. Did you write any of it down or you just no. stayed inside? I just kept it in. God. Yeah. And I definitely kept reporting, like whenever I went to my oncologist, there's this kind of form you fill out mm-hmm. and they ask you a lot of questions that really are linked to your mental health. So they ask you things about like anxiety, yep. your attitude towards your overall being. They asked questions about, you know, your sleep, your loss of appetite, all of those things. And I kept reporting it mm-hmm. and it was never addressed. I did have a sense that I was probably going to need to see a therapist at some point to deal with some of this stuff, but I just wanted to focus on being well. And then I kept trying to like push some of the thoughts aside too, because you have to stay positive, right? About like like buying into that, like kind of movie narrative, right? Like, I'm like, I got to keep the hope. And I, I do believe that there's value in staying positive. Um, And I do believe that it's possible to get caught in a cycle of negative thinking that can be very detrimental. Mm -hmm. But what happened to me, I think is a little bit more like toxic positivity, where like, I thought I just had to be positive all of the time. And that I couldn't have those negative emotions at all. And like, in retrospect, like, I'm just thinking like, you're staying positive, but actually, you're not right. But I was trying really, really hard to like, force yourself into it. Right. And sometimes I remember I would just like break down crying and I would look at the time. So right now it's 9.58. I would look at the time and be like, okay, it's 9.58. You have to stop crying by 10 and you have to pull yourself up and you have to keep going and like walk, walk the kids to school. And you've got to volunteer at school and take the kids to the play group and, and sit on the parent council. Like I kept doing these things to look like I was normal and to make the appearance that I was functioning well. And I wasn't, I, I wasn't really deep down. This is um, like just, cause I saw you multiple times a week in this time. Yeah. And I was and like normal ish. I, I knew, I knew you were, I knew you weren't like obviously totally fine, but I yeah. never, I just wouldn't have guessed the depths of like where you were going. Yeah. And you know, there's so many people who never even would have guessed anything was going on with me because mm. I didn't say anything. And I just kept pretending. And then I also had this fear. Well, if you think these negative things, you're going to make them happen. So you have to stop yourself from having those negative feelings and you have to stay positive because, you know, I'm going to manifest, I'm going to manifest my well-being. We're not going to talk about that word. I have thoughts on that one. Well, exactly. (laughs) So do I. And that's why I'm saying it in, in, in sort of a facetious way, but Mm. I did feel like I couldn't allow myself to have those feelings, but they kept creeping up. And I kept trying to like live life to the fullest and just like embrace my children and love, you know, cuddling them. And 
enjoy walking them to school because I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this forever. And like put a lot of value in tucking my kids in at night because I didn't know if I'd always be able to do that. And while I was trying so hard to just savor every moment, my mind was drifting to other places. And I was trying so hard just to stay present. I remember like watching movies with the kids and like trying to be with them and having a family movie night and like not watching the movie at all. Right. And just thinking about the cancer and just wondering about what was happening. And I had, I had a lot of tests and a lot of procedures as you know, this is what, this is what happens when you have cancer. Yeah. It was like, okay, so we're going to send you for an MRI. That's going to be in about two weeks. And then we'll have the results of that in about two weeks. And then, oh, we need to do this other procedure because you know, the MRI is showing this. So we need more data before we like, it just kept going. So I was constantly worried about the next test, the next procedure, the next results. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to get through that in the best way that I could. Right. Yeah. And parent. Well, really, I, I think I was sort of falling apart. So that went on for about three months. And then I had surgery. So I had a full hysterectomy, which was actually a modified hysterectomy. And my cervix, my uterus, my fallopian tubes removed. They left my ovaries um, just because the hormones are good because of my age and whatever. Well, I feel like as a woman, that alone if you hadn't already been dealing with all of the other stuff is like a mind fuck is a whole other thing. Yeah. And then it's like, Oh, well, aren't you so glad that you have your two children? And yes, of course I am. And I don't even know if I was going to have more. It wasn't necessarily a plan, but I would have welcomed more. And you had the option to, and I had the option. It would have been my choice as opposed to having that choice removed for me. So yeah, there's lots of emotions wrapped up in that mm-hmm. as well. And I was so, I really was focused on having this moment where I was going to go to the doctors and they were going to be like, you're good. And like celebrating. And it was going to be amazing, right? Yeah. Like the most elated I'd ever been. And that moment came for me where they're, they'd completed surgery and they'd done the pathology and they're like, Hey, good news we got it all. There's no indication that it has spread into like your lymph nodes or anything. You don't need chemo radiation. Like you're good. We're going to follow you closely. And I remember sitting there thinking, what is wrong with me? Because I was almost numb. It was not this like Like weight off your shoulders. It was not this weight off my shoulders. It was not at all what I thought it was going to be. I did take pleasure in telling people the good news, right? Like that felt good to have that burden off of me because as I said, you were carrying that. I was carrying that. So that felt good. And then life went on. People weren't worried about me anymore. People weren't really offering to, you know, take the kids or send us meals, you know, and then that's when I really fell apart. It's like you felt safe to like let yourself. Yeah. So certainly in part, like some of it was like all of those feelings that I hadn't allowed myself to feel that I hadn't really dealt with. And I'd been trying to suppress came back. Right. I also had this really strong fear that they'd missed something. 
that they were wrong. I feel like that's probably normal. So that even though they're like, nope, we got it all. You're good. Very low chance of recurrence. I'm like, "Mm." I mean, very low isn't none. Yeah. I don't trust that. I had such a hard time trusting that the number of times I went like back to the doctor. It didn't help that I also had like one of the signs of recurrence would be pelvic pain and I had pelvic pain. So, uh, right. So, and part of that was like, I ended up doing uh, physiotherapy, like pelvic floor physiotherapy for close to a year mm-hmm. following the surgery, because I had like nerve problems in part from the physical trauma Mm-hmm. of having had all of these procedures and having had a hysterectomy yeah. and in part because of the psychological trauma, yeah. because I haven't really touched on this, but like cervical cancer is like in kind of a private part of your body. Mm-hmm. So you got all these people up in there more than just these, a regular exam. Yeah. And like, not, <laughs> not that the doctors are doing anything wrong, but still, but it felt so invasive. Yeah, I can really I can't like my, even imagine. My first appointment, I was diagnosed by my gynecologist and then I was referred to a gynecological oncologist um, at a teaching hospital. And my first appointment at the hospital, there were five doctors in the room, all of whom want to look, want to learn. Like it felt like it felt horrible truthfully. And like, yeah. they're, and as I said, it's not that they were doing anything wrong, but, but like, I did not expect it. Okay. <laughs> I did not expect it at all. So right. I thought there'd be like probably two doctors, like an oncologist and a radiologist. That's what I expected. But then there were three other people in the room. I was like, what is this? Like, whoa. And you probably didn't even think in that moment to say like, I'm not comfortable with this. Not at all. Not at all, because yeah. they're the doctor. Like it's just they're the doctors. What it was, this is the hospital, and, and I just were, have to do what. Well, and you were in your own place, yeah, you know, your own headspace. Where I'm sure, yeah. So I, I definitely had like, I had like physical and emotional trauma that was, of course, really causing the pain that I was experiencing. But then, because I had the pain, that also looped into me constantly thinking that something was still wrong. Right, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it was like end of November when they told me that there was no evidence of disease. And by January, I was a disaster. You like really. forced yourself through Christmas. And- yeah, maybe I was kind of, it's a blur, truthfully. Some of it's a blur. Yeah. I would later be diagnosed with PTSD. And um, some of the things I guess I was experiencing at that time was just like, I was having flashbacks all the time of the very first time I was told I had cancer. Um, And it was like vivid detail. I could see like the minute like lip movements of the doctor saying, so it looks like cancer. And it's invasive. It's not just like it comes when you want it to, (laughs) right? Like, and I was having nightmares I had difficulty falling asleep, but then when I did fall asleep, I was having bad dreams. I started having panic attacks. I started like forgetting things. Like I just couldn't organize my thoughts. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't organize my, my time or my day. I would have like bouts where I was really angry and I would like throw things and scream. You would? I was, yeah. I was crying a lot. I was really irritable too. Like maybe if one of the kids did something that might be a mild irritant, I was really annoyed by it. And I was having a lot of anxiety and things like, you know, any sudden noises. So like a knock at the door or somebody dropping something or which happens a lot. Like there's a lot of sudden noises when there's kids around. (laughs) I think there's just sudden noises in life, right? Like, right. But even more so with kids for sure. And like my kids running around would like make me feel like dizzy and give me anxiety. Like they're laughing or they're like, screaming even like happy screaming yep was like a trigger for me mm-hmm. and i started having like dissociation and i started losing time and i didn't know what was wrong with me and i was just like what is wrong like i'm a wreck like i was just a wreck i was not functioning i was not able to complete day-to-day tasks And I would do things like, like I'd find myself wandering around the house with one shoe on. And I'd be like, I guess I was getting ready to go somewhere. And I don't know why I stopped putting my shoes on, but now I've got one shoe on. And like, I couldn't remember why it is that I stopped putting my shoes on. Or where you were even going. Or like why I half unloaded the dishwasher. Mm -hmm. Or why I made one bed and not the other. And like, I would find like, I would walk around my house and I would find evidence of like me having been there Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not having finished tasks and not remembering what caused me to leave that task. Not remembering what I was doing in the meantime. Like I was just not present. I wasn't present really. And I went. Did John notice this stuff? Oh, for sure. Did he say anything to you? Um, because that's a tr- it's a hard thing. I don't think he needed to. Okay. Because I think I was telling him, like, I'm a wreck. Mm-hmm. Like that would be like. Like, I'm like, I'm a wreck. I'd I'd tell him, like, I was just like cooking lunch and I just like started crying and I can't stop. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that he needed to tell me because I definitely acknowledged it. I acknowledged it. And I, I acknowledged that I was irritable, but I couldn't help it. And I was kind of withdrawing as well. So I just wanted to be alone in my bedroom where there's no sudden noises, where there's no demands put on me, where there's no expectations, where I could watch TV or flick through my phone and be distracted and not deal with the feelings, right? Like that became part of my strategy for trying to forget. And I was still very much afraid. I still I almost was still operating as though I still had cancer and there still was this danger. My life was still being threatened. So I was still in that kind of fight or flight mode. And I had seen my doctor previously 
and he'd given me medication for anxiety. And that was like, right when I was diagnosed, I was like, dude, yeah, you gotta help me. I cannot work like this. So he gave me a note and he gave me medication for anxiety and that helped. It did, especially if I could take that before I went to bed, sometimes that would help me just be able to actually fall asleep asleep. and, and hopefully stay asleep. Um, but I went back to my family doctor and I was describing, and I was emotional. Like I was bawling. I was not talking about it. Like I'm talking about it with you. Right. Right. And he said, I think you have PTSD and I'm, I'm so grateful for him because he said, I can give you medication that can help you feel better. But he said, ultimately you need to see a therapist and that's, what's going to make the difference. And I don't know that all GPs would have said that. Right. I think that there are some GPs who might've been like, here's a prescription. Mm-hmm. But he, he didn't. He was like, the, ultimately, the way we need to treat this is, is for you to see a therapist. And so I did. Mm-hmm. I have a background as a social worker. So I'm not adverse to the idea of therapy, if that makes sense. I wasn't afraid of that. And you know what? Like, I also knew he was right. Right. You just needed someone else to say it. Yeah. And I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody. I didn't want to burden anybody. I didn't want people worrying about me. I felt like I had to be strong and people really, people really kind of stopped asking too, because I was better, right? She's cancer-free. She's got her happy ending. And you were also putting out there that you were okay. Yes, I was. Right? Where, I mean, and I can't, I know I would have probably been all over you if you didn't put out the appearance of being okay. Like, yes, I would see cracks, but never... Would I have yeah. known? I just keep when you saying I, you know, I, I had to be strong. I, I remember this is going backwards in time, but when you said you yeah. had your when you had your surgery and you were so scared of not oh being able gosh. to do stuff for the girls. Yeah. And I'm like, you're allowed to not do all the things. They're allowed to know yeah. that you're uncomfortable. Oh my god. And that was just talking physically. Yeah. I remember this conversation. I'm tearing up here and you say it back to me because Yeah. Like I was so worried about my kids. I was never afraid of dying. I like, that was not it. I was not afraid of dying. How they would be affected. Right. I was afraid for the people who love me and what the effect of my death would be on them. I wasn't afraid of dying. That never, it's so weird, but like that never entered my mind to be afraid of actually dying. Yeah never entered my mind. I wasn't afraid of chemo. I wasn't afraid of the surgery. It was how it was every, you were putting everyone else before you in the time that you should have been putting you first. And I'm sure there's other people who would listen to this and be like, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm not just in this situation, but I think there's other situations too, where people are putting their friends and their family ahead of their own needs and trying Mm -hmm. to be strong and putting on that brave face, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The idea of having surgery and not being able to care for my kids. You were really like hung up on not being able to put them to bed. I was so hung up on that. I really was. I really didn't want them to see me, not me. And I was really worried about the way 
that that was going to affect them and what their emotions would be. And like, I worried a lot about my husband too, who he was suffering as well. Like, let's be real. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. He had two little girls. Like that must've been pretty scary. I honestly, after you told me, I was like, how is John? Like, yeah. And I was so falling apart that he really had to step up and keep it together. So especially after I was cleared, because then people disappeared. And I'm not saying disappeared, people still cared, but they had their happy ending. Well, yeah, you were okay. And you were putting out this impression that you were okay. So why why would anybody like keep checking in and making sure you're okay? Right, you appear to be okay, okay. And you actually have been diagnosed as being okay. Right. So how did you go from that to where you are now, where you are able to talk about it to therapy? (laughs) What I would say made a huge difference. Okay. Like, so my first, I would say probably the first three appointments with my therapist, maybe the first two. And I remember clearly the first one, I literally sat there and cried the whole hour. I don't even think I, I don't even think I got my story out. If that makes sense. Like, obviously I I talked a little bit, but I just cried. Probably just being in that safe space. It was the safe space, right? Like the, I could let my guard down because my, my fear about the cancer coming back wasn't going to really impact her. And part of it, like, I didn't want people to know I was afraid because they weren't worrying anymore. And I didn't want them to worry anymore. I wanted the people that I love to be able to move on, if that makes sense. I didn't want to put it out there that I was still scared. I also kept thinking, you know, if you're scared, it's going to come back. Like, this is this, this is like this rhetoric that I think is sort of prevalent in society. And I really think that I was fell victim to it in some ways that if I think positive, positive things will happen. If I think negative, negative things will happen. And so I have to be positive all the time and like try to shut these feelings down. So then I'm like, okay, now, but now I'm worrying about cancer all the time. And the more I worry about cancer, the more likely it is that it's going to come back. So I just stop worrying about the cancer, which makes me worry about cancer. And it was just like this cyclical worrying about the fact that I'm worrying instead of just I couldn't just say, I'm worried and scared that the cancer is going to come back and that's okay. And I can be scared and that's normal. And I could still be positive and I can still have positive emotions and also be scared. I didn't think I could do both. Right. I thought I, my boy's therapist ever told us was that your emotions are like the weather. It can be raining and sunny at the same time. Yeah. Or they're always changing. Definitely seeing a therapist help. And then I don't know, like at some point I started letting out little snippets of how I was feeling. And I started, you know, sort of saying things like, you know, I was given the all clear, but sometimes I still worry about it. And people were like, well, yeah, of course, that's probably normal. Most people who are given the all clear from cancer still probably worry that it might come back. Yeah. So having people when I finally did kind of start opening up a little bit and people were empathetic and people validating those feelings and not making me feel like I was nuts and not brushing it aside. Like people not being like, oh yeah, I know you shouldn't worry about that. Right. And the more I started talking about it, the more 
empathy I found made it easier. Yeah. And definitely, you know, my, my therapist was the first person who kind of did that for me. Yeah. Right. But then that kind of opened up the doors and I kind of like put a lot of emotional burden on her. Like I went in and I let it out and I admitted to these fears and these thoughts that I was having. And, you know, I admitted to having the flashbacks and uh, my husband knew some of it. Mm -hmm. Like he knew that I wasn't sleeping. He knew I was having nightmares. He knew I was crying and irritable. I mean, it's not. You can only hide so much. You can only hide so much, right? And then I remember like researching about post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and somehow coming across something called post-traumatic growth, which was not anything I'd ever heard about. And it's not something I want to pretend to be an expert about, but I remember seeing that and I went, that's going to be me. It like gave you hope. It gave you something. It gave like. me hope. I was like, that's going to be me. And I made up my mind that I was going to make that happen. <laughs> and it's sort of funny, I guess, because then I started reading all these like self-help books and all these we're gonna learn your way out of it I'm gonna learn my way out of it because this is a strategy that has worked for me in the past and it's funny that I mentioned it earlier because then this is exactly what I did I'm gonna read all the books on personal growth and self-help and I'm gonna find out you know all of the things that the experts say that successful people do and I'm gonna find out all the things that people say resilient people do and I'm gonna find out all the ways that the experts say lead to happiness, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to read all the books. Yeah. And then I tried, (laughs) I'm laughing about it now. Then I tried implementing like all of it. And part of, you know, my PTSD was that I couldn't keep my thoughts organized and I forgot things. So then I got into this like crazy list making where I wrote everything down. And I was writing down all of the things that I thought or that I'd read and learned that a person was supposed to do. So then I had these super long lists of things that I needed to do in a day that was going to get me out of this, <laughs> which like meant that I thought I had to meditate every day. I had to journal. I had to make the bed every day. I had to like make sure that, you know, counters were clear. Like I had to volunteer because volunteerism is shown to really help people with mental health. Like there were all of these things that I thought I had to do and And be a mom and wife in the middle of it all. Right. And so what are those things? What does that look like? And, uh, oh my gosh, it's in the other room, but I keep, I still, I keep my notebooks. Mm -hmm. So like I, I've occasionally looked back and been like, whoa, look at all the things you thought you had to do on that day. I mean, and I couldn't do it. No. And I would feel bad about myself for not being able to oh do my it. Gosh. And, you know, this is just part of my journey that I'm sharing because yeah. I started thinking, well, maybe if I just pick a couple of things and like one of the things I really felt like I had to do was meditate because everybody knows meditating is good for you. And that if you're anxious, surely meditation is going to help you. But then sometimes I would get stressed out because I couldn't, I couldn't, or I wasn't didn't feel like I was doing it right. Or I couldn't make the time for it in my day. Like I don't like waking up before the kids. That's not fun for me. Or like other things would come up during the day. I'm like, well, you know, I've got to make sure that I, I make sure that I have enough time to meditate before I go to my appointment because, and it was actually stressing me out to try and do that. Anyways, that's just one example. And like, 
making the beds every day. You know what? Nothing really catastrophic is going to happen if you don't make your bed. It feels good to make it. But it feels good at the end of the day to like walk into your room with a made bed for sure. But if you don't make it, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. And I think those realizations is when my recovery really started to happen. It wasn't so much from all of the self-help stuff. Although I have learned some things and I have certainly evaluated my life and thought about whether or not the life I was leading before I was diagnosed, like, is that the life I want back? Because I have this opportunity to rewrite it, to rewrite it. I don't have cancer anymore. And there was no going back to normal for me. I feel like I'd I don't necessarily want to say I was enlightened, but I was a little enlightened about how things work. And I definitely think that having been through what I went through gave me a wisdom that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And I couldn't go back to normal after that. I couldn't just like go back to doing all of the things that I was doing because I was surely headed for burnout as a working mom with two young girls. Yeah. And putting so much into my work and trying so hard to be the perfect mother. That was me pre-cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that that's right. So I had this, I almost feel like I had like an identity crisis where I was like, okay, well, what do I want? What do I want my life to look like? Because before you just values? before you just wanted to create anything that was different from what your experience growing up was. Right. And I wanted to create what, you know, the media tells me I should create. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. I did the things in the order I was supposed to do them. Yeah. Except I, I did live with my husband before we were married, but like I went to school <laughs> and I got the education and yeah. then like I got the job and I got married and I had the kids and, you know, we had the house and the cars and like I was constantly pursuing more. Right. Because that's what we're fed. Like there's no end point and there is no end point until there is. Right. But there's no finish line. So we have this, you know, we end up living our lives where we're just trying to get more and more and more and more and more. And I was really kind of stuck in this cycle of constantly trying to improve and, you know, being a mom of young kids and sitting down and saying, okay, so what, what are my interests? What are my hobbies? What do I want my life to look like because I'd really kind of lost myself in motherhood. Which and I think more, so many of us do. And the more I started talking about that, the more I was like, whoa, like other people feel this way too. And I started being more open about that, which I think, you know, having people relate to you kind of just made it easier for me to start talking about other feelings too, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not going to pretend that I never worry about cancer anymore because I sometimes still do. I still am, I still have regular appointments. Yeah. So I've, I'm far enough out now that I only go once every six months, which is huge. But yeah. every appointment. There's got to be crazy nerves. Is an opportunity for me to start spiraling. Yeah. Yeah. And I stop, like I can't sleep. And then it's like, okay, so there's these symptoms. I know the questions that they're going to ask me. There's certain things to start looking that you're supposed to look out for. So then I start asking myself, am I having these symptoms? 
And you can almost trick yourself into Uh thinking that you are having them. Yeah. And it's, (laughs) it's very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I was just going to say, you know, one of the things why we're doing this, right, is how it's a funny question to ask because I always want to be like, how can I, how could I have better supported you? Like how, how, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have a friend who's going through this, something similar, Mm -hmm. what is someone who loves them potentially to do if they're putting on this appearance of being good? I think that, you know, not to assume that what you see is what's real. And we always hear this idea that like, you never know what someone else is going through. And after um, when the year anniversary of me being clear, it was, or maybe it was the year after my diagnosis and I'd already been cleared is when I finally put something on my social media about what had happened in the last year. Mm-hmm. And so many people were just like, I had no idea. I saw you picking up the kids at school every day mm-hmm. and I had no idea you had cancer. Mm-hmm. So people can be really good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. Apparently I'm, I was really good at it. Yeah. And, you know, we almost can make ourselves feel better if we think that the person looks like they're doing well. Then that absolves us of having to reach out to them. Well, it's like a check. Okay, they're good. Like, don't need to. Like- right. And I guess maybe, you know, don't be so quick to assume that people are okay if you do know, because a lot of people do know that I had cancer, mm-hmm. right? But after I was cleared, like, I was That's cleared. when the work actually happened. I, that's you. The, yes. And, and I think that is the case for a lot of people mm-hmm. who've been through things, like not just cancer, but you know, people who are in the hospital because they were in a car accident, like, okay, now they're physically well, but now they're home and they might still really be suffering the psychological effects of that trauma. Mm-hmm. And we think that they're physically well, so they're well. Yeah. I um, think it speaks a lot. Well, especially, you know, as we're in this pandemic time where there's a real focus on physical well-being and health, when I personally believe that they're, that we need to look at overall health they're inextricably linked. And just because someone is physically well doesn't mean right. that they are mentally. And just because I got out of bed and I put clothes on and I threw my hair in a ponytail, <laughs> like it doesn't mean. No, you have I'm kids. Well. You have kids. You don't have a choice. You know, when right. I don't know how we're going to air these, but in my own personal story, you know, People are like, you know, the assumptions that we make because you're dropping your kids off or, you know, feeding them, whatever it is. It's like, well, what choice do you have when you have small children? And, you know, I always say to you, I'm like, you could choose not to, but there's certainly having young children is a a great motivator. Yes, you could choose not to. I don't know. Outside of yourself. Yeah. That you can use to motivate you to move you know, forward. Yeah. Your question is a tough one because so many people I think 
are hiding how they feel. And I also think that there may have been people around me who maybe suspected that or noticed that I was different on some level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like maybe not knowing how hard it was, but I think there must have been people that recognized I was different. Yeah. You know, we just, I think beyond us meeting weekly, I wouldn't have had any idea what to do to offer any support. And I think obviously like I knew when you were starting therapy. And so I knew that there were things going on, um, right? but yeah, I also I, could see that you didn't necessarily want to talk about it or, you know, like no. it's not something that I was going to push you to talk to me about. Yeah, And I, I didn't necessarily want to talk about it. I think in a lot of ways, people that I knew, because again, like I really wanted people to be able to move on and I wanted you know just and it is certainly in part just my personality that I feel responsible for other people's emotions and I don't want to be the cause of other people to worry or be upset what would you advise someone going through a similar situation to do differently than you did or maybe not differently like what would you Yeah, no, I think that I really probably should have seen a therapist sooner. I really felt like I'm just going to get through this and then I'll go to therapy. And I probably should have seen a therapist sooner. Uh, The other thing is that you don't have to be positive all of the time. And that is kind of where I got caught up. I think it's okay to be scared right? It's okay to have these negative thoughts and to worry about what is happening and to feel like things aren't in your control because they aren't. And it's okay to have those negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And you can still have a positive outlook and you can still think, you know, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to be okay. And also allow yourself to feel the other feelings too. It's all a range of emotions. Yeah. Because it, might have been easier for me if I really had just allowed myself, you know, to cry when I wanted to and not just like set a timer and be like, okay, you're allowed to cry for the next three minutes. And then you got to put on your big girl pants. I remember like, you telling me that when I was struggling one and day. And I told you, don't do it. I'm no, not- I, I, well, I was like, yeah, that's never going to happen. I was like, this like, is what I did. Like, and Ooh. I'm not saying you should do it, by the way. Yeah. No. But, and I was like, and I think I said, I was like, well, I never would anyway. But that sounds, I, I just, that's unfathomable to me. I, I just understand like why you would, but I, I don't, I couldn't. Yeah. I did that. I mean, it's fairly often. It's crazy what we do when we think we have to, or and it was know coping, what else to do. And it was a coping strategy yeah. for me because I also had this fear that if I start crying, I'm never going to stop. Mm-hmm. And I do still have to parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I guess, yeah, for somebody going through that, I think like that's probably the best advice I could give is like don't be afraid of having those big feelings and to know that those big feelings and the fear is normal and that other people think 
those things as well in that situation. I feel like you have enough to be scared of. Why waste those fears on being scared of how other people are going? I mean, it's easier said than done, obviously, but how other people are going to, you know, react to your feelings, right? Yeah. I think what we learn in going through anything traumatic or hard is the people who love you, love you regardless. And, and them struggling with what you're like, because you're struggling just shows how much they love you. And it shows you who, who is really there for you in your corner. Right. And I definitely, I don't know. I remember thinking like, I'm really important to a small group of people. Like you are. I think it's bigger than you suspect, but right. And I was like, I, I have to be well, and I have to get through this because I'm really important to some people. And I don't want to feel this way. Like when I was going through the PTSD, I was like, I need to get better. And I want to get better. And I want to live a fulfilling life. And I, I might not be the most important person in the world. Like that was some of my thinking, like, I'm not the most important person in the world, but I am really important to some yes. people. And my well-being is connected to theirs. And I think, you know, for anybody who's listening on top of just recognizing that you can have these so-called negative emotions and also that that can coexist with the positive and that just because you're having these bad feelings doesn't mean that, you know, you're not still having that positive outlook that we're all told we're supposed to keep they can coexist and you know I really would like people to know that anytime you have a trauma you're not responsible for reassuring the other people you're not responsible for how other people react to your trauma it's not your responsibility to to take care of them or to reassure them so often people you know people will say oh I'm so sorry and we say it's okay almost to reassure them. And I don't think we have to do that. We can just say, thank you. Yeah. I say I'm okay a lot. Okay. Yeah. That's a good one too. Like I'm okay. We're okay. You know, because I'm oftentimes speaking for, you know, the three of us. But there is this kind of idea. I don't know. Like for me, I really felt responsible for how people responded. And I really felt like I had to keep a brave face so that people wouldn't worry. And I really felt like I had to kind of reassure them and tell them like, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I remember saying to people like, I'm not going to die. I'm going to be okay to try and make them feel better. But that's not actually the truth of how I was feeling. And I don't think you have to do that. And just, you know, in keeping with that idea that I was saying, like, I kind of had this realization that I'm important to some people. Yes. And we're all important and we're all worthy and doing those self-care things that we have to do and finding a way to, you know, do what makes you happy or do what makes you feel calm or what makes you feel relaxed. Doing things that make you feel good, I think is so important in your recovery. So whether that's if, you know, being outdoors makes you feel good or writing makes you feel good or moving your body or whatever that looks like for you, you're worthy of doing those things for yourself. You're absolutely right. I think it's easy to get bogged down in the emotions, 
mm-hmm. that taking care of yourself can feel frivolous, but it's showing yourself that you're worthy and you are worthy of feeling good. But I think that was like such a huge part of my recovery was just to actually start doing things for myself and to actually not feel like I had to always be doing something or I had to always be productive, allowing myself to rest when I wanted to rest or saying, you know what, I'm not going to do the dishes. I'm going to watch TV or I'm going to go for a walk because I feel good when I'm outside and it's different for everybody. But I do think it is important in terms of building resilience that we do those things for ourselves to help our recovery. So I think take care of yourself, let yourself feel the feelings, and you're not responsible for how anybody else feels about your trauma. Nope, not at all. Um, Thank you for taking the time and having this conversation. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. And make sure to find us on Instagram at nowwhat underscore podcast. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.